0: 24. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on Iris is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. Now here's our first story from the business record. A closer look, Katie Patchett, she's the executive director of Capital Crossroads. This is a story written by business record staff. Katie Patch's first week as Executive Director of Central Iowa Region's Capital Crossroads Initiative was appropriately overwhelming and extremely exciting. The 35 year old said she is meeting key players and taking a deep dive into the Central Iowa Regional Initiative's history and 2024 report, Central Iowa's Roadmap to Opportunity and Prosperity of All. The 12-year-old collaboration among regional organizations, city governments, school districts, nonprofits, and residents announced Patchett's hire on January 10th in tandem with its latest report and multi-year initiative. According to the report, the Golda Roadmap, initially called by Organizers Capital Crossroads 3.0, is to bring local leaders together and produce tangible outcomes for what are considered central Iowa's biggest economic drivers placemaking, workforce housing, job growth, and education. Patrick comes from the world of politics and government policy, including a four-year stint as U.S. Representative Cindy Axne's district director and deputy chief of staff, and time as a legislative clerk in the Iowa House. She handled the sensitive constituent issues, breaking through the red tape of federal agencies like the IRS and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, And assembled Axne's local team after the 2018 election prepared her for the crash course required to learn Capitol Crossroads history, objectives, and regional network of organizations and leaders, she said. Patchett says she understands the need to move and organize quickly. It's really hitting the ground at a sprint, Patchett said. I'm no stranger to that. I had to create a congressional office from scratch on day one. I'm used to that. Originally formed in 2011. Capital Crossroads connects nearly 700 community volunteers to meet the challenges of the future while building on our past successes, according to the organization. The initiative and regional vision planning processes are in partnership with Bravo Greater Des Moines, CATCH Des Moines, the Community Foundation of Greater Des Moines, the Des Moines Area Metropolitan Planning Organization, the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Oak Ridge neighborhood, Polk County, and the United Way of Central Iowa. Planning from past Capital Crossroads uh, iterations helped create the cultivation corridor to support policy development and build Central Iowa's business startup opportunities, the Partnership Public, DSM for Equity Dashboard, and the Central Iowa Water Trails Incubator. Patchett will be in charge of that coordination and bring attention to the effort. In her nearly seven years at LS2 Group as a public relations and public affairs director, Patchett led brand storytelling for clients like McDonald's and Ford Motor Company. Working for Axne, her staff handled nearly 900 constituent cases in 2022 alone. But Patchett said it was her time clerking the Iowa legislature, seeing what I had learned about in the classroom and read about in textbooks come to life was her most formative experience. She said, I saw so many people from different backgrounds with different experiences, areas of expertise who had come together in the space, you know, kind of this very formal structure, with lots of history behind it, she said to serve their community, to try and improve the state and make life better here for people. And that made a big impression on me. I developed a big respect for people who had chosen careers in public service. The Business record sat down with Patchett as she finished her fifth day on the job and discussed how public how public service was almost a lifestyle choice growing up in Middleton, Wisconsin, household and her hopes for the Capitol Crossroads map. So the first question the business record posed to her was, how did you get interested in politics and public policy? I grew up in a very civically engaged household in Wisconsin. Wisconsin public radio was always on in the morning while we were getting ready for school, and CNN was on by the time I got home from school as well. My dad, John Patchett, actually served in the state legislature as a young man from the Iowa City and North Liberty areas. We would go on vacations to places like Washington, D.C., Williamsburg, and Gettysburg, and Philadelphia, so that interest in history and government and community engagement was very much present in the House growing up. It informed my interest in studying political science when I went to school, and it informed my interest in going to work in the state capitol. And ultimately, I remained interested in all of that while I was working in the private sector, but continued to stay involved in political and governmental activities outside of work, which led me to meeting then-candidate Cindy Axney, who became a member of Congress. I had the opportunity to serve as her district director and her deputy chief of staff for the two terms that she was in office and run her constituent services congressional offices here in Iowa, which was an incredible opportunity. I was also brainwashed from day one to be a Hawkeye by my father, so no surprise, I found myself at the University of Iowa. Next question for Ms. Patchett, uh, what were the differences working in a federal government versus state and local government, and how did you navigate each? When you're learning about it in school, and I think just on face value, I think a lot of people assume that all of the action and the most impactful things are happening at the federal level. And I kind of had that impression, too, before I came to do work at the state capitol for two years. I came to understand that the most impactful legislation that's being passed is happening at the state level. They are working on issues that are going to have a direct effect on local communities across the state, people living here day to day. Next question, how did you become aware of the executive director position at Capitol Crossroads and what drew you to the role? She replied, I found it on LinkedIn. I had heard of the organization previously, and in reading the job description, I thought it sounded like a really incredible opportunity to continue to make a positive impact on the community and address issues that are affecting families. And that was my favorite piece of working in a government office. We had the ability to learn about issues and work with organizations to help people solve problems to make their life better. And this seemed like a really incredible opportunity to work with a broad section of community leaders who had come to the table, who were passionate and driven about these same issues and continue to impact the community that way. I reached out to a couple of different people and asked, what do you know about the organization? How do you feel about it? And ultimately, I'm just really grateful to be here. I've experienced a very warm welcome. It's been really uplifting for me to feel the energy of the people in the room. There's a genuine interest in activating this plan for the community. And I think Capital Crossroads has tremendous potential to really make an impact on these issues. And for me, that is such a huge motivator. If I'm going into work every single day and I'm able to collaborate with people who have energy, who have passion, who have expertise on issues, and I can learn and grow and continue to give back, it's not going to feel like work. Next question, considering Capital Crossroads' two-year timeline to produce outcomes, looking 24 months down the road, what are your goals for this latest iteration of the initiative, and what will be your role in implementing Capital Crossroads? I'm really excited at the idea of working really hard at this. We have our focus issues, workforce, housing, and education, and working really hard at these issues with community partners, with the community members, with our leaders and actual tactics, that we can then look back on and say, we accomplished this in a very, you know, measurable way. In two years, pause for a moment to reflect on what's worked well. Take a look at some of those indicators and where we did well. What impact have we made? I want to be able to see some tangible results in two years. We do have that big, bold vision, and these are big goals. And it might be smaller bites of the apple to start, but it's a start. We have to start somewhere, and I want to build on that momentum. I want to be able to see tangible outcomes that we mapped out in the beginning. I want the community to feel connected to the plan, so I want them to understand what it is that Capital Crossroads does. I want them to feel like they can reach out to me. I'm eager to be meeting with our subject matter experts, with community members who have a stake in these issues. I want them to be more familiar with what we're doing and feel that it is an effective execution of their plan and then be able to use that momentum to continue to carry forward. One of the things I said early on in the process, I wasn't born and raised in Iowa. I chose Iowa. That means something to me. To be able to give back and engage in community service for the community that I've chosen to live and work in is important to me. And it's a strong motivator. I also have a stake in the success of this plan. I want to create a life here, build my family here. There's so much opportunity and potential in this community, and that's reflected in Capital Crossroads and the people that we have at the table to undertake these issues. But there's also still some great need. There's so much room to grow and to improve. I'm really excited to be a part of an initiative to help lead an initiative that is focused on addressing these issues that are going to create a better quality of life in the place that I have chosen to live. Next question. What publications, books, and podcasts are you reading or listening to right now that you would recommend in going deeper informs your worldview? I love reading. It's one of my favorite things in my spare time. Last year, I read 55 books, and some of those I read more than once. I primarily enjoy fiction. Fiction reading is a lovely way for my mind to be quieted and just experience some escapism. So this year, I've already read four books. The last couple I read were We Could Be So Good, and that's by Kat Sebastian. And I just last night finished First Lie Wins by Ashley Elston which is getting some buzz right now. It's a nice way for me to just kind of unwind. In terms of the news I read, I love the business records daily AM and PM newsletters. I feel like I stay well-connected there. I listen to Iowa Public Radio every single day. And in terms of news podcasts, I really like the Daily from the New York Times. I basically became my parents. News is on in the morning, news is on in the evening, and I tried to do a good job of also making sure that I'm curating my social media, and my online platforms to follow community organizations and local news outlets. So I'm aware of what's going on and looking for opportunities to tell stories and engage groups. It's important to me to stay informed of what's going on at the national level, the state level, and the local level. That really helps me historically and will continue to be better at my job, help me be more strategic, and help me understand who the players in the room are me understand their perspectives and make sure that i'm being strategic and holistic in my approach and it's always good to listen and get ideas and be exposed to issues and perspectives that you weren't aware of before so yeah i think news and staying informed is critically important now here's at a glance uh, some more information about katie patchett um, she is 35 years old her hometown is middleton wisconsin uh her partner is Chris Hall, the two cats and a two-year-old rescue dog. Her work background includes being the District Director and Deputy Chief of Staff as U.S. Representative Cindy Axney Axne from 2018 to 2023, Director of Public Relations, Public Affairs, and Events at LS2 Group from March 2012 through December 2018, and Legislative Clerk for the Iowa House of Representatives from January to April of 2012. Her education, she has a bachelor's degree in political science and government from the University of Iowa. Her activities are reading fiction, spending quality time with family and friends, traveling with my significant other, especially to go camping and hiking in national parks, making embroidered art, walking the dog, tossing a Frisbee, she says golfing badly, and having a drink on the patio. So that's a little look at Cindy Patchett, the uh, new director of the Capitol Crossroads Project. And our next article is uh, one written by Kathy Bolton of the Business Record, and it's entitled, How Will the Sale of Wells Fargo Properties at Discounted Prices Affect Other Office Properties? It's Too Soon to Say, Experts uh, Say. It will take several months, if not a few years, to understand the effects Wells Fargo's sale of Des Moines area properties at discounted prices will have on the office market property valuations, according to real estate experts. The two sales of office properties in the western suburbs could prompt other potential commercial office buyers to make offers that are below asking prices, prompting owners to reassess whether to sell properties. It could also prompt property owners to request valuations be lowered and, a move that would generate fewer property tax dollars for cities, counties, school districts, and other entities. Alex Wilcox, a commercial real estate agent with Cushman & Wakefield, Iowa Commercial advisor, said, I don't think it's going to have some kind of catastrophic doom and gloom on the market. There won't be a monumental shift in the market. In December, Wells Fargo sold properties at 7001 Westtown Parkway, and 1725 68th Street in West Des Moines, and at 13733 University Avenue in Clive. WBA Realty Company, a central Iowa commercial residential brokerage firm, bought the West Des Moines properties for $16.5 million, or $57.3 million less than the properties' combined assessed valuation of $73.8 million. Heartland Co-op acquired the former Wells Fargo property in Clive, paying nearly $6.5 million for the property that is valued at $13.7 million. The sale of the properties occurred less than a year after Wells Fargo announced that it was relocating many of its Des Moines area employees to its Jordan Creek campus in West Des Moines. The financial institution's home mortgage offices had been located on the Westtown Parkway and University Avenue properties. A spokesperson for Wells Fargo declined to comment about the property sale prices. By Byron Tack, Brian Tack, I'm sorry, who's the chief deputy assessor in Polk County, said it's too soon to know the impact the sales will have on valuations or other transactions involving office properties. In the past year, four Des Moines area office properties have been sold for between 70 and $160 per square foot, Tack said. That's a tremendous range. We're always trying to look for a pattern. We need to figure out which of those are outliers and whether there's something unique about the higher or the lower sales. We just don't have enough information right now to make a determination said Other properties in Polk County that have been sold in the past year include the Wells Fargo property in Clyde that was sold for nearly $70 a square foot. An office building at 1200 Locust Street in Des Moines that the city of Des Moines acquired for about $80 a square foot. An office building at 6200 Park Avenue in Des Moines that the state of Iowa bought for $130 a square foot. And an office building at 1615 Locust Street in Des Moines that Mid-American Energy acquired for just over $160 a square foot. In March 2023, Wells Fargo listed four office buildings, and a parking garage for sale. A company spokesperson declined to comment on whether properties are listed at below market prices. Wilcox speculated that Wells Fargo's downtown properties could be sold for below their value if a buyer plans on using the buildings for uses other than offices. Wilcox added, if a buyer plans on redevelopment, they're going to have to put money into retrofitting a building. They will want to buy the property for as little as possible, but if an investor or user buys the property, they might have the ability to pay a little more. Justin Losner, a senior managing director in JLL's Des Moines office, said it is unlikely that the property occupied by Wells Fargo and West Des Moines would have ever been sold for near its assessed value. It was a corporately occupied asset and had been for years, said Losner, who, with others at JLL, listed the property. Going forward, it's not going to be a 425,000-square-foot single-occupier building, which means the value of that is different. Unless magically an owner-user came along and wanted to purchase the whole thing, which is unlikely in the Des Moines market, then you're looking at this as an investment speculative purchase. The traditional cost of tenant improvement packages were taken into consideration when the JLL team determined the property's value, Lawsoner said. Also consider where the amount of time it will take to lease the property and what a property owner's expectations would be on their return on investment. Steve Helm, the assessor for Dallas County, said it's too soon to know how the sale will affect the valuations of other office properties. However, he said he's had a few inquiries from office property owners asking about lowering assessed valuations. Ryan Wiederstein, owner of WB Realty Company, which bought the office building, has said the competitive lease rates being offered in the six-story building will attract interest from potential office users. Leasing options for potential tenants will range from 4,000 square feet up to the entire building for a single tenant. Wiederstein said, we bought the property at a price point that we think can be very competitive in a Class A office market in the western suburbs. Lozner said he is is seeing an uptick in interest in Class A office space from potential lessees. If you're sitting on a high-quality Class A product, odds are that you're looking at the multiple deals right now. If you're sitting on C-quality space, you're probably still pretty cold. Helms said no decisions have been made on whether to change the valuation of the recently sold West Des Moines office property. If the building remains vacant for a long time, the property's assessment could be lowered, he said. If it is leased quickly, that's another thing. And again, this is an article written by Kathy Bolton, a staff writer for the business record. IV announced Tuesday that it is now a joint owner of Exemplar Care as it seeks to provide more affordable primary care and urgent care services to Iowa patients and employers. As part of the agreement, Exemplar Care Clinics are located in West Des Moines and Ankeny, with a new one coming to Bon Durant, will be renamed Hy-V Health Exemplar Care. Hy-V Chief Medical Officer Daniel, Dr. Daniel Fick and Exemplar Care's leadership team, including Dr. John Van der Veer, will manage the clinics. Employers using the Hy-V Health Exemplar Care can provide their employees access to unlimited primary and urgent care. Few memberships for a fixed monthly fee or layer the membership with a major medical health plan. Healthcare memberships are also available to individuals and families outside of an employer-funded plan. Aaron Weiss, president of Hy-Vee, said in the news release: We are proud to partner with Exemplar Care to provide a new way of delivering health care to patients and employer groups. By combining Exemplar Care's expertise with Hy-Vee's extensive background in pharmacy and infusion care, we will not only be able to reduce the cost of health care for patients and employers, but most importantly, improve the health of our patients through personalized care, increased access to care, and transparent pricing. Now we move to a weekly feature of the business record, which is information on real estate deals in both Polk and Dallas counties. And our headline for this story is that the historic Hawkeye insurance property in downtown Des Moines has been sold. It is one of Des Moines' oldest buildings and has been sold for $1.6 million. Hawkeye DSM LLC, managed by Jake Torolato, paid Number 16 LLC, managed by entrepreneur Bruce Gerliman $1.6 million for property on 4th Street that includes the historic Hawkeye Insurance Building. The three-story brick building was constructed in three phases beginning in 1869 according to an application to the National Register of historic places. Construction was completed in 1881. The structure includes a half-raised basement and commercial design features records show Hawkeye Insurance Company, uh, first successful casual, uh, which Des Moines' first successful casualty insurance company, and occupied the building for more than four decades. The uh, historic application said that the company's success sparked a boom in the field that earned Des Moines the Hartford of the West. The building is probably the oldest commercial structure in downtown, retaining its basic integrity. The building was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1986. It was designed by architect William Foster, who had an office in the structure. The building currently includes bars, a salon, and apartments. Tortola does not plan on making any major changes to the building. The property is valued at $951,000. In other transactions, North Ankeny Land, based in Ankeny, paid William Kimberley Development Corporation $2.3 million for undeveloped land in Northeast Ankeny. The property is west of Interstate Highway 35 and north of Northeast 54th Street. Absolute Farms, LLC, located in Slater, paid Pearl Farms, $3.7 million for armed ground in northern Polk County. The land is north of Northwest 158th Avenue and east of the Northwest 142nd Street and Y Avenue. Acadian Ingersoll LLC, located in Des Moines, paid Hampton House LC $3.7 million for property at 4200 Grand Avenue in Des Moines. The property includes three three-story brick apartment buildings that were constructed in the early 1950s. The buildings included 74 apartment units. The property is valued at $3.3 million. And in Dallas County, Stephen Rowe and Mary Louise Havlin paid David and Lorene Bryden just over $1 million for property at 28848 Hickory Ridge Drive in Van Meter. The 2.25-acre parcel includes a 2,300-square-foot house that was built in, uh, sorry, in 2008. Megda Jamaca LLC, that's based in Beverly Hills, California, paid Michael Paul Ramsey and Baker Tuttle Family Trust $1.1 million for property on Vista Drive in West Des Moines. The property includes a 3,700-square-foot fast-food restaurant building constructed in 1994. Burger King currently occupies the building, and the property is valued at $1.45 million. Midwest Oil Seeds Incorporated, which is located in Adel, paid Norman Stein and Audrey Stein $1 million for farm ground in rural Dallas County. The land is east of L. Avenue and south of 250th Street. N-I-R-H-L-C paid Brandon Estates $1.6 million for undeveloped property in Northwest Waukee. The seven and a half acre parcel is located south of Northwest Sunset Drive and west of Northwest uh, 10th Street. And again, that's real estate news. That's a weekly article in the business record uh, written by Kathy Bolton. Baker Group, an Ankeny-based design-build contractor, announced the opening of a new office in Kansas City, Missouri. The new location is Baker Group's first office outside of Iowa, bringing its total locations to five. The expansion aims to serve the growing industrial base in the region with a focus on industrial automation. That's according to a news release. Jared Stockel, Baker Group's Vice President of Automation, said in a prepared statement, This is a big step for us. While we are headquartered in Iowa, we are committed to following good clients anywhere In doing so, we have seen more and more work coming from the Kansas City Metro. It made sense for us to establish a physical presence there so we can more efficiently serve the region's growing industrial base, especially data centers and mission critical facilities. Baker Group's industrial automation services include systems integration, supervisory control, and data acquisition. process, control, and instrumentation. You are listening to this week's edition, February 16th edition of the Business Record. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the Business Record to IRIS so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 243-6833. And now back to the Business Record. Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nigg announced that the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship is now accepting initial applications for the Resilient Food Systems Infrastructure Grant Program through March 8. The program offers grants ranging from between $10,000 to $1 million to projects that distribute fresh produce, grains, and other products to wholesale markets, institutional buyers, and other intermediary markets. By building food processing capacity and strengthening supply chain distribution, farmers and small businesses will develop more durable avenues to market their high-quality products, and consumers will end up with even more Iowa choices to enjoy. And Nick said that in a prepared statement. Alliant Energy's Iowa president retired and Farlinger has been named the successor. Terry Koba, president of Alliant Energy, Iowa's energy company, will retire from the organization the Public Utility Company announced this week. The company's board of directors has selected Mary. I'm sorry, May Farlinger to succeed COBA, as well as serve as vice president of operations. COBA's retirement and Farlinger's appointment will both be effective May 1st. COBA has worked for Alliant for 42 years, according to news release. John Larson, executive chairman of the board, said in a prepared statement, his empowering leadership style experience, and focus on operational excellence has served our customers well. Farlinger joined Alliance Energy as an intern in 2004 and has since held roles across the company's departments, including finance, regulatory, field engineering, and customer renewables. She most recently served as vice president of customer and community engagement in Iowa. As president, Farlinger will have overall accountability for the performance of Alliance Iowa Energy company, including responsibility for growing Alliance customer base in Iowa and leading the company's economic development, community engagement, and account management groups, the release said. She will continue to direct regulatory activities and initiatives supporting electric and natural gas customers in Iowa. Farlinger is also responsible for directing and implementing the day-to-day delivery of gas and electric service and working with the company's Safety Blue Hat program across the state She earned her bachelor's degree in finance from the University of Iowa and her MBA at St. Ambrose University in Davenport. Business owners are speaking out against the anti-trans bill at the Statehouse. This is an article written by Michael Crum in the Business Record. Bills that are trying to strip rights away from members of the LGBTQ community are continuing to hurt Iowa, and its efforts to retain and attract top talent, owners of small businesses in Valley Junction said recently in a letter opposing the legislation. It's the second straight year that businesses in the West Des Moines neighborhood have signed a letter in opposition to the legislation. At least 15 such bills have been introduced in the 2024 session. Those are, in addition to many more that were introduced last year, and although not approved, have carried to the current session. In the letter, the business owners urged other business owners to stand up and speak out now against the bills, citing the potential exodus of talent from Iowa. The proposed legislation is not only a moral issue, but an economic one as well, said Val Bycock, owner of Bing's Gift Store. For years, business leaders have shared the detrimental business impacts of policies that exclude LGBTQ plus people from full participation in daily life, including negative impacts on workforce, recruitment, productivity, and bottom lines. Felicia Cole, the owner of Circa Wonderland Studios, said the bills make Iowa unwelcoming for young talent, which leads to a loss of talent, creativity, and expertise that our state desperately needs. Some of the bills include House File 2082, a bill that was defeated in subcommittee on January 31st. It would have stripped gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. A public hearing was held on Monday for House File 2389 called the Trans Erasure Bill, which would define woman, girl, mother, father, boy, and man in Iowa Code and issue special birth certificates to indicate a transgendered person's status. That measure passed the House Education Committee and is eligible for debate debate by the full House. Another measure, Senate File 2095, would allow religious exemptions for groups to decide which laws they will follow based on their religious beliefs. That bill is now eligible for debate in both chambers. The measures are among those that are gaining traction at the Statehouse at a time when statewide business groups list workforce as one of their chief priorities during the session, raising the importance of Iowa doing more to attract and retain talent. Several business groups and companies have come out against some of the bills, such as the religious exemption measures and the bill that would have stripped gender identity from civil rights protections, but have remained mum on the trans erasure bill. The business record reached out to some of the organizations for further comment. It did not receive a response from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry and the Technology Association of Iowa. The United Way of Central Iowa and Iowa Chamber Alliance declined comment. The Greater Des Moines Partnership sent a one-sentence email response that read, We continue to monitor legislation at the state house to learn about how it affects the workplaces of our investors and members. Joe Murphy, president of the Iowa Business Council, which came out against the bill that would have stripped gender identity from the state's civil rights law, issued an email statement saying the organizations for priorities for the 2024 session are designed to promote a thriving, inclusive economy focusing on a competitive tax landscape, enhanced workforce initiatives, and modernized economic development tools. He said, we look forward to continuing our work with policymakers throughout the duration of, those, of the legislative session and beyond to promote opportunity and success for every island. Principal Financial Group and the Kraus Group LTD, have come out against the religious exemptions bill, the lobbyist declarations show. Courtney Reyes, executive director at One Iowa, said there has been some re-engagement by the business community this year on issues affecting the LGBTQ community because of attempts to strip those residents of their civil rights. One Iowa, uh, excuse me, Uh, One Iowa lists all the LGBTQ bills on its website. In all, more than 40 bills have been introduced over the past two sessions that target the rights of the Iowa's LGBTQ community. Reyes said attempts to strip rights of LGBTQ residents are sending a very clear message that they do not want folks like me in our state. So that's the first issue, said Reyes, who leads the advocacy group that works to preserve and advance the rights of LGBTQ Iowans. We're not the talent they want to retain. That puts the business community in a tricky situation because they have to play in that power balance. But at some point, something has to give that the business community is willing to take the risk and stand up for all of their employees and their families. Reyes said it's a mistake and short-sighted solution to not engage on this type of legislation, in my opinion. It's imperative for the business community to step up and use their power and privilege to help fight for the lives of their employees and their families, she said. Reyes said attacks on the LGBTQ community affect everyone. When you start restricting someone's health care, you are attacking health care on its face because who knows where they stop, she said. Do you want your health care taken away based on a certain characteristic of you? It's making sure that everyone has access to the health care that they need. It's access to public education. As we dismantle these systems more and more, it impacts more than just the LGBTQ community. When you make a policy that is discriminatory in public education, you're impacting that entire public education system. People are not going to want to move here, come here, stay here, Because all of our systems are being dismantled. Why would you want to live in a state that is continuously taking away people's rights? The bills moving through the legislature are sending a state that was once at the forefront of civil rights back in time, Reyes said. People are mistaken if they think this is just an attack on the LGBT community. This is an attack on Iowans in general. If you do not believe this legislation impacts you or your family, you are mistaken, Reyes said. It is not the value of Iowa that I was raised in that were taking away the rights of other Iowans, and this is not the Iowa that I want to be a part of. Friday marks the first funnel deadline for this year's Iowa legislature. Bills must pass out of a committee in one of the chambers to move on this session. The next funnel deadline is Friday, March 15th. This year's session is scheduled to adjourn on April 16th. The final day per diem of payments are made to lawmakers. Site plans for two uh, new data centers at Microsoft Core's Ginger East Campus were approved by the West Des Moines Planning and Zoning Commission this week. The the two 245,000 square foot structures will be the third and fourth data centers built on the 124-acre campus, which is located on southeast Moffett Lake Road. The campus has the ability to hold five data centers. The City is allowing Microsoft to plant shrubs and landscape islands in the parking lot rather than trees, a departure from standard requirements. A Microsoft representative previously had made the request citing security concerns. Trees will be planted in buffer areas surrounding the site according to information provided by Commission members. The site plans were unanimously approved by the Commission. The City Council must approve the plans before construction begins. The commission also approved a site plan for a 76,800 square foot multi-tenant warehouse at 3074 Southeast 42nd Street. In December, the city council voted to allow installation of footings, foundation, and utilities to begin. WB Realty Company, which is based in Clyde, is developing the South Branch Business Park. Now we move to the opinion section of the business record. This is a column written by David Albert, entitled The Albert Files, and the this column this week is Removing the Safety Net. It was a bright winter day when I saw my friend Casey deep in thought at the John and Mary Papajohn Sculpture Park. He was looking at the figure, reclining figure, sculpture. Looks like a charred asteroid from outer space, I said. Don't you see the resemblance to a woman lying on her side with one leg up in the air? Casey responded. Not really, I replied. I read somewhere that the artist died of Alzheimer's disease, and there's a debate over the role the disease played in his later works. Sounds reasonable, K.C. said. Did you know he was buddies with Jackson Pollock, and some of his paintings have commanded Pollock-like prices in the hundreds of millions of dollars from hedge fund collectors? Why am I not surprised, I said. What is it about this piece that captured your interest, I continued. K.C. said, it reminds me of the movie The Greatest Show on Earth. You mean the 1952 Cecil B. DeMille classic about the Barnum & Bailey Circus, I said? My family saw that at a drive-in theater when I was five years old. KC asked, what do you remember about it? I replied, I remember it's quite traumatic. One of the trapeze artists was performing without a net to prove how brave he was when he fell and was crippled. I had nightmares for weeks. Maybe that's why I've always had a fear of heights. As phobias go, KC said, that's not a bad one to have. KC added, anyway, that's what this crumpled, twisted mass of steel reminds me of, someone who made a mistake while performing without a safety net. Sadly, he added, you're going to see a lot of real-life examples of this crumpled figure in the coming years. How so, I said. Governor Kim Reynolds and Republicans in Iowa legislature have decided that when it comes to tax cuts, they no longer need a safety net, or at least not a net big enough to catch everything. I said, you're starting to lose me now. Casey said, well, you remember when they started cutting taxes a few, year ago, a few years ago, they said they would go slow, and make sure there was always enough money in reserve to cover any setbacks or downturns in the economy. I said, yes, I remember, and I'm also old enough to remember the kinds of problems that occur when government doesn't have enough money to do all the things people expect from. That's what happened during the farm crisis of the 1980s, and it took us years to dig out of that hole. Exactly, Casey said. That's why state government created a reserve fund to keep things running smoothly. But now Reynolds and other Republicans want to ignore that. They're kicking the supports out from under the safety net and boring full speed ahead with plans to eliminate Iowa's income tax. They're ignoring the fact that the only reason there's a healthy surplus in the reserve fund now is because of all the federal money for COVID relief and infrastructure spending that Iowa received in recent years. Rather than wait a few years to see how the tax cuts affect spending for schools, health care, infrastructure, and all the other stuff that the state government pays for, they want to charge ahead with additional cuts and even eliminate the income tax, he said. They want to fly without a safety net, just like the trapeze guy in the movie. KC pointed to the sculpture and said, If they do, it's a good bet that Iowa's economy will wind up on the ground in a crumpled up mess like this. And again, that's an opinion column written by David Albert, um, entitled The Albert Files, and he offers weekly columns in the business record. The business record launched its Racial Equity Advisory Board in 2020 as an initiative of the newsroom to regularly hear feedback about how coverage could be more representative and what stories related to racial equity the business record should be covering. Numerous story ideas and connections from the board, have led to more diversity in our news products, awards, and events. In 2024, the Business Record is broadening the barge board's focus to all the stories created company-wide at Business Publications Corp., including the Business Record and DSM Magazine. As a media company, we believe our products should mirror our community both in the ways we celebrate diversity and in facilitating meaningful conversations about equity. We are pleased to announce nine new members who will Join these current members. They are Duana Bradley, Bridget Cravens-Neely, Brian Dennis, Tej Dewan, Renee Hardiman, Christine Her, Prakash Koparupu, Tar Macias, and Claudia Schabel. And here's a little information on some of the newest members. Uh, Marcella Solo Terran is a Division Human Resource Director at Arvum, an operating company of Discovery Senior Living, and is an entrepreneur. She is a passionate advocate for creating inclusive and supportive environments where individuals feel respected and valued. She also holds a deep interest in integrated education and training programs, particularly apprenticeships, which provide opportunities to individuals who may otherwise lack access. Antonio Kiyoko is a software engineering manager at John Deere with over 20 years of experience. He leads teams responsible for cloud enablement and document digitization. He's a member with the lead DSM Community Connect program and a co-founder of Tech Journey, a tech nonprofit whose vision is to motivate and empower users with limited access to resources and who are underrepresented in IT to take an interest in technology. Corey Lewis is a clinical health coach at Broadlawns Medical Center. He is dedicated to aiding patients in achieving their health goals and managing chronic diseases. Driven by personal experiences and working with underserved populations in the healthcare system, Lewis established the Healthy Project, focusing on creating health equity content, including Healthy Project podcast and mental health series, Coffee Can't Fix Everything. Sherika Marshall is Executive Director of the Director's Council and is a passionate advocate for the advancement and equitable future of the Des Moines community. Uh, Marshall has taken the lead in creating and implementing community events, programs, and initiatives. Her efforts are focused on providing valuable opportunities for minority communities, thereby contributing significantly to the overall well-being and prosperity of Des Moines. Amner Martinez is the founder and CEO of Infinite Resources, a local recruiting firm, and Amplified DSM, a local podcaster production company platform. His mission is to bridge the cultural gap in the community and workplace. Julian Neely is an emerging community leader focused on supporting diverse community programs and strategies. His commitment extends to a civic involvement where he serves on boards, committees, and collectives focused on uplifting the equitable practices, and amplifying the voices of underrepresented communities. Paul Pauldell is the Chief Equity Officer for the City of Des Moines. She has served in three other municipalities in a similar role. Her global experience includes working in multiple countries in Southeast Asia, excuse me, in Northeast Africa, and has shaped her worldview and passion for eliminating inequities and barriers so that everyone can achieve Their full potential. She has degrees in Drake University and DePaul University and currently serves on multiple boards locally and nationally. Courtney Perry is the CEO of Privacy LLC, an event planning and brand management company, and Ladies Lex Scented Candles, a candle manufacturing retail company. She has a mission to provide peace in the light of bringing your vision to a reality and producing a product that helps combat mental health issues. She's a board member of the West Des Moines Chamber of Commerce and Taste of the Junction. And finally, Madison Sconyers has 20 years years plus of hands on community outreach and engagement experience and a passion to close socioeconomic gaps to enrich all Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities of Iowa. After graduating from Iowa State University, Sconyers joined the corporate workforce, spending more than eight years with Wells Fargo as a loan originator, implementation consultant, and DEI champion. After leaving Wells Fargo, she shifted to the nonprofit sector as a contracted consultant for various nonprofit organizations. She's currently serving as the training specialist for the Polk County Treasurer's Office. The 2023 Iowa Business Hall of Fame inductees has been announced. This is an article written by Business Records staff. The Greater Des Moines Committee announced Monday it will recognize Ray Cole, Rob Denson, and Roger Underwood as the 2023 inductees to the Iowa Business Hall of Fame. The Iowa Business Hall of Fame honors the achievements of Iowans who have made outstanding contributions to the development and enhancement of Iowa's business climate. According to a news release, past Hall of Fame honorees under leadership of Chair Dr. Terry Walling, CEO of ChildServe, serves as the selection committee Inductees are selected based on merit rather than endorsement. The really said the criteria is this: business leadership, community development impact, community volunteerism leadership, strategic leadership, and business recognition. Ray Cole worked for a New York-based broadcasting company Citadel Communications for 48 years, including 38 years as president and chief operating officer. He retired from Citadel in 2023. He held various leadership positions in the broadcasting industry while serving on the boards of the National Association of Broadcasters, the Television Bureau of Advertising, and the ABC Television Affiliates Association. He currently serves on the board of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. In Iowa's broadcast industry, Cole served on the board of the Iowa Broadcasters Association and was inducted into the Iowa Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2015. His other community involvement includes serving on the boards of the Principal Charity Classic, the Iowa Hall of Pride, and Partnership for a Drug-Free Iowa. He graduated from Briarcliff University and moved to Des Moines in 1994. Rob Denson is the fourth president of DMAC. He was appointed in 2003 and is now the college's longest-serving president. He entered higher education following a 19-year law career. He worked at Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida, and is president of Northeast Iowa Community College of in Kalmar and Dubuque before joining DMAC, He serves on the vo- boards of various community organizations, including the United Way of Central Iowa, Future Ready Iowa, the Agribusiness Association of Iowa, the Iowa Direct Caregivers Association, the Iowa Rural Development Council, the Greater Des Moines Partnership, and Iowa Economic Development Authority, Denson received a bachelor's and master's degree from Iowa State University and graduated from the University of Florida Law School. Roger C. Underwood is an entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. He founded Becker Underwood in 1982 in Ames. He graduated from Iowa State University in 1980. The chemical company created a specialty colorant so farmers could mark their herbicide application. It scaled internationally, reaching $265 million in sales by 2012 when it was acquired by Bass Chemical Company of Germany for $1.02 billion. The Atlantic, Iowa Navy participated in the Capital Corridor Steering Committee, which resulted in the establishment of America's Cultivation Corridor. He has also been involved with Iowa State, providing a $1.5 million cash gift to establish the Entrepreneurship Program for Students at the University's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, Underwood is currently an investor and chair of Pivot Bio, a Berkeley, California-based ag biotech company, and a board member of Muscatine-based Kent Corporation. The three inductees will be honored during the Greater Des Moines Committee's annual induction event on Wednesday, May 1st at the Metals Events and Conference Center, and more information can be attained uh, on the Hall of Fame website. DMAC has named five staff members to new roles, five employees of Des Moines Area Community College, all of whom have served in different roles at the community college, will start new positions for the spring semester. Jessica Cole has been named Associate Dean of Public and Community Services. Shelby Hildreth served as an academic advisor at the Boone Campus before accepting her new role as Director of Admissions and Recruitment for all DMAC locations. Derek Walker will become director of the Manufacturing, Engineering, Trades, and Transportation program. And Andrew Neuendorf will serve as the program's associate dean. Aaron Dorf will continue in his role as director of assessment until a replacement has been hired. And lastly, Dustin Dickhott has been named associate dean of health sciences. One of DMAC's strengths is the experience, dedication, talent of our faculty and staff, said Rob Denson, the DMAC president. These five individuals have continued to move DMAC forward and help position us as one of the best colleges in the nation. A former Clive Hotel is going to become workforce housing. New owners have experience in converting properties to residential. This is a story written by Kathy Bolton of the Business Record. Jason Grove and Tina Smothers have converted two properties into workforce housing in the past five years. Dormitories in a former AIB college campus in Des Moines, and an extended stay hotel in Clive. So when the then owners of a six-story Clive Hotel, located on Hickman Road, approached the business partners in mid-2023 about acquiring the property, Grove and Smothers didn't immediately jump at the proposition. Grove said, "This was not a project that we were looking for." But after visiting the property and discovering the majority of its rooms included kitchenettes with sinks, the pair decided to. Forward with the acquisition. In late December, Grove and Smothers bought the property for nearly $5.9 million from Betra Hospitality Group Incorporated. The property includes 2.4 acres and is valued at $2.3 million. A day after the transaction was completed, the hotel closed and the work on the conversion to multifamily began. Having the kitchen sinks already in the units made this conversion project work, Grove said. It's incredibly expensive to retrofit sinks. If we would have had to do that in all the units, we financially couldn't do workforce housing. Hotel conversions to multifamily have been on the rise nationally in recent years. In 2022, 29% or 2,954 of the 10,186 buildings converted to multifamily were hotels according to data compiled by rentcafe.com. A year earlier, just 2,060 hotel-to-multifamily conversions occurred. Two things are likely driving the increase in hotel conversions, real estate experts said. One is that older hotel properties are unable to compete with sparkling new facilities and offer a myriad of amenities, according to a 2022 article in Urban Land. Converting hotels to multifamily residents also is typically less expensive than building new, especially for projects aimed at providing workforce housing. Grove said, in order to create workforce housing and to get into the rental price range that we want to be in, it's difficult to do new construction and still be in that price range. Retrofitting existing properties into workforce housing has really been our niche. We have been able to find the right property in the right location and provide a new type of housing as in high demand. In March 2022, Grove and Smothers bought property on Fourth Avenue Incline that originally was a Marriott Residence Inn. The property changed hands several times before Grove and Smothers bought it and converted it to workforce housing. By October 2022, when renovations at the Vibe at 8035 were complete, over 90% of the property's 112 units were leased, said Grove, whose background is in finance and buying and selling properties. In 2019, Grove and Smothers purchased the former AIB College of Business campus southwest of downtown Des Moines. The two renovated what was known as Fenton Hall East and West, turning the former campus housing into affordably priced apartment units, nearly all of which are leased. The Workforce Housing Study released in May 2019 showed that Polk, Dallas, Warren, and Guthrie counties needed to add 33,592 owner-occupied housing units of all types as well as 23,577 new rental units before 28. The study also showed that 70% of the area's new households would have annual incomes of $75,000 or less and would need affordably priced housing that means the majority of new rental units needed to change monthly rental rates needed to charge monthly rental rates of $1,250 or lower the study said monthly rental rates at the McCoy will start at $850 for a studio unit the monthly rate for a two bedroom with will start at $1,425. Well, you've been listening to The Business Record for the week of February 16th, 2024. The Business Record on IRIS is the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. I'm Pat Steele. It's been my pleasure to read for you, and thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.